We're brought now to the progress of redemption in the book of Ezekiel this morning. I'd like to draw your attention really to four ideas that come out of Ezekiel. Certainly a very prominent idea is the one that you just heard read and you're hearing in Ezekiel chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. And in the book of Ezekiel, uh, primarily what we see is the majesty and the sovereignty of God. And we look here, for instance at the holiness and transcendence of the Lord here, when we look right here in chapter 1, or verse 4, Ezekiel 1, 4. And here's the prophet Ezekiel, As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And what we have here, Again, think about where Ezekiel was. Ezekiel was exiled to Babylon with many of his countrymen. And surrounding the people of Israel and Babylon were images and declarations of the power of the Babylonian gods. And so they were immersed, if you will, in false gods, in false religion, and so forth and so on. And here is Ezekiel, and God has called Ezekiel uh, such that they would see and understand the majesty and the power of God. And so Ezekiel describes as God's vision is coming to him that from the north, and the Israelites recognize that, that often those that would come and do what they will with the nation of Israel to attack them would come from the north. And so Ezekiel looks to the north and he sees this cloud and he sees fire in the midst of the cloud like burning metal. And this is what Ezekiel sees as he's hearing from the Lord and proclaiming to his people. And the idea here again is the holiness, the transcendence of God, the otherness, this idea that Ezekiel is seeing this God that they must know. But this God is wholly other. He's transcendent. As we've mentioned before, what we see in our own culture today is an insistence that God is only imminent. He's only inside of me. He is something that I manipulate, frankly. God is someone who gives me something I want, and then He goes away unconcerned about holiness. But Ezekiel was very, very concerned, and God called him such that the people would understand and firmly grasp with their minds, that God is wholly other. He's transcendent. He's sovereign. He has purposefully allowed even Babylon, the wicked nation of Babylon, to come and trounce upon Israel and draw His people away such that perhaps they would come and turn to the Lord. Ezekiel proclaimed the still greater power of the true God over the Babylonians' gods. God's holiness is preeminent in the book. Also presented, of course, is this idea that sin is an affront to God's holiness and must be judged. If you want to see the awesomeness of God's creation, it may be that uh, as you are rightly drawn into all of the amazing creatures and the beauty of this world that we live in, although tainted by sin, it might be that you have forgotten that there are heavenly creatures that we know nothing about except that we read them here in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 1 for instance he says in verse 5 and from the midst of it came a likeness of four living creatures and this was their appearance they had a human likeness but each had four faces and each of them had four wings 
Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot and they sparkled and burnished like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands and the four had their faces and wings thus. Verse 9, their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had a face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. You have not seen anything like this. Ezekiel, of course, understood that. And it was, again, his intention that God would use Ezekiel to draw his people in to recognize the majesty, the power, the sovereignty, the holy otherness, the transcendence of this God. So a question for us today, of course, is are you wowed by God? You sit alongside things that you once thought were amazing and they don't get your attention. Certainly this is true of our understanding of God. When we get to the point where we're no longer drawn into the majesty and transcendence of God, you be sure you recognize that your heart is hardening. It's not a good thing. And this is a significant issue that Ezekiel is going to draw our attention to in the very next section of this book in chapter 3. And this would be the second point, the first point being the holiness and transcendence of God. The second point being the seeming impenetrable nature of the human soul. The seeming impenetrable nature of the human soul. I draw your attention to Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 4 through 12. And he's directed in verse 4, And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint have I made your forehead. Fear them. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your eyes. Verse 4 again, he says, Son of man, go to the house of Israel. Go to the house of Israel. You should be thinking right now, I hope, of John chapter 1. We see the Lord Jesus Christ going to the house of Israel. His own people. And the exact same thing happened to the Lord Jesus as is happening to Ezekiel here. He says, verse 6, not to, many, not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words 
you cannot understand. As a matter of fact, he goes on in verse 11, he says, Go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. I'd like to draw your attention to the pronoun, your people. When you become your people to God and not my people, that's a problem. And we should, again, recognize that God is saying to Ezekiel, these now are not my people, they're your people. (laughs) In other words, I'm not owning them anymore because they're dead. Their hearts are hard and impenetrable. The issue here of being foreign is not regarding the ability of the hearers to understand, but their willingness to listen. Again, this is God's idea here. When He talks to Ezekiel and He says, you're not going to a foreign people, the point isn't that they cannot physically understand what He's saying. The point is is that the people of Israel understand the language, but they're unwilling to listen. They're unwilling to listen to the Lord. So we should ask ourselves the question, why... Why are we so hard-hearted? Why do we loathe spiritual cleansing? Well, we should ask ourselves the question as well, what was the purpose of the exile? Was it merely for God to express His wrath over His own people, over the people that He created and drew to Himself? No. It was to purge the nation. It was a purge the nation. And it wasn't the type of purging so much that was accomplished in the Exodus when an entire generation of people died out. But the intent here was that the sin would be purged from the nation. Do we suppose that in Christ's substitutionary atonement that we can be forgiven without the humbling process of confession and repentance? Do we think that God's monergistic work and salvation results in those who trust in Christ not needing to be purged of sin? This is an important question. When God draws a person to Himself and He transitions them from life to death, what does that look like? If it doesn't look like a purging of sin, then conversion hasn't happened. If if we think that when we come to Christ, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say, only our sins are justified and not the sinner is justified, then we have the wrong idea. Martin Luther himself had some pretty graphic illustrations for what it was meant 
to be purged out of this world and to have his own sins purged from him. Now children, this hardness metaphor is an interesting one. Think about something that's so hard. The hardest surface I expect that most are aware of in this world that God has created is that of diamond. Diamond is very, very hard. There's this odd hardness scale called the Moore scale, and diamond on a scale of 1 to 10 is right there at 10. As a matter of fact, the uh, illustration here that the Lord uses is that of flint. Hard as flint. And the idea is that it's impenetrable. The idea is brought from an illustration about making an impression on a certain substance. You can think of making an impression. For instance, we when, uh, when an old typewriter used to have the little hammers that went onto the paper, it made an impression on that paper. And if it was unable to make an impression, likely you would go hunt down another ribbon that had ink on it. And if there was no impression made, it could be because of that. But think a bit more appropriately in this case of scribing some letters on a very hard substance like rock or stone. And you go, and here's the craftsman, he's going to try to scribe something, to try to write something on this hard substance, and it's impenetrable. It won't, there's nothing there. He tries to write on it with a very hard substance, and it, it doesn't work. It's too hard. When you think of flint, likely perhaps, at least in my mind, uh, the idea of flint and steel comes. Some of you may have started a fire with flint and steel. Perhaps you might be interested to know how flint and steel works. Which is harder, the flint or the steel? If you were thinking flint, you'd be right. Why do sparks come off of flint and steel? Those sparks are flecks of metal. It's burning metal, as a matter of fact, that's caught fire. Those aren't specks of flint. The steel is much softer than the flint is. Hardness of heart. Richard Baxter says, Hardness of heart is not a distinct sin, but the habitual power of every sin. Unmovableness in any sin. It's not a lack of passionate feeling regarding the things of God. This is an important idea. Matter of fact, Baxter goes to great lengths to describe uh, that this isn't about cultivating passion, if you will. This idea that I need to simply cry more over my sins. As a matter of fact, he directs attention away from the notion of crying over sins and directs the idea that that may, in fact... Indicate a hard heart, one who is actually not interested in the habits of sin, but only in the sin itself. A hard heart goes by other names, names that are far more kindly and euphemistic, names like resiliency and courage and determination, persistence and liberty. Now, those things that I just mentioned aren't bad things. 
But when they are simply euphemisms or names to describe what is in fact a heart that's impenetrable, then we're at an altogether different matter. And that's what Ezekiel is getting at here. This is the idea that he's drawing out. Hardness is the inability to be impacted by the Word of God. We should make sure we understand what a hard heart is. It's inflexibility. It's impudence. It's a cocky boldness. It's not regarding others. It's a searing of the conscience. It's unfeeling. It's impenitence. Not necessarily associated with being unkind. As a matter of fact, I can be hard-hearted with a smile. But I'm not listening. I'm not hearing what it is that you're saying. I'm not taking in the words of God. And this is a very important situation that God is bringing to Ezekiel's attention. A few biblical examples. Though the soldiers at Christ's tomb were frightened by the angels, they were hired for money to say Christ's disciples removed his body. King Hezekiah's messengers speaking the truths of God to his countrymen were mocked by the people. David and Solomon couldn't convert their hardened subjects. Though they punished them, they were determined to be wicked to death. The impenitent thief who died beside Christ went to his death, reproaching his only Savior. This is a hard-heartedness. Ezekiel asks Israel the question in 1831 as well as 3311, Why will you die, O Israel? Why will you die? Now you may be thinking, I'm glad that's not me. Whew! This one's for someone else. I wish it were that simple. If you might have noticed in the passage that was read to you in Ezekiel 33... Excuse me, 37, verse 11. Who was it that was revived in that dry valley of bones? Well, you would like to say some of the house of Israel, wouldn't you? And again, the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy is those who are walking as children of Abraham, children of faith. But no... The whole house of Israel was laying there as dried bones. We should admit as God's people that we are very susceptible to having a heart that's hard. To being insistent on our own understanding. To reading the scriptures only to confirm what we thought they said all along. And never being open to what they really say and what it is that God intends for you to hear in them. 
So the second idea here is the apparent impenetrable nature of the human heart. We should also rejoice that in the midst of our total depravity, a living personal God breaks in and can soften it day by day. There is hope as we see the watchman sequence of the passage in three, chapter 3, verses 16 and following, this idea that God has called Ezekiel, of course, to be a watchman to draw his people out. Richard Baxter thirdly has his recommendations for a way out of the hardness of the heart. One of them is to remember the majesty and presence of God. As a matter of fact, he has a whole section in his book on what Ezekiel encountered with this hard heart idea. And we also see that God uses Ezekiel to do this very thing. To draw people's attention to the majesty and the presence of God, to His greatness and power. He also says, Notice how sensible, tender-hearted Christians are of sins far less than those you make fun of. Notice how sensible, tender-hearted Christians are of sins far less than those you make fun of. The work of preparation is a work of fear alone. The first work of true conversion is the work of fear. Those who are hard-hearted have no fear of God. As a chaplain to the Marine Corps, I admit to you that I was pretty eager to go to combat with Marines. And it would have been an odd thing over the past few years for a chaplain not to have that opportunity. But when I got there, I was mostly surprised about one thing. As I had hoped for hearts that were prepared and soft as they anticipated the reality of the real potential of their death or injury. What I found was a hard-heartedness that rejected the very idea. And so in many ways, I was in the same situation that Ezekiel found himself in, dealing with a people that were dead. Hearts impenetrable. And the reality is some believers obviously have hearts that are also in certain ways impenetrable. One of my favorite stories of World War II is a story of a man named Ernest Gordon who was a British soldier. Spent three and a half years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. As a matter of fact, he was involved in this bridge that was built over the River Kwai. He says the movie is absolute fiction. And that's why one of the reasons that he wrote his book called The Miracle at Kwai. And in it, Ernest came to faith in Christ in a prisoner of war camp. And the miracle of Kwai, or of his prisoner of war camp, was the transition from hard-heartedness to mercy. As he saw a distinct transition of those that were coming to faith in Christ amongst the prisoners of war. 
as they transitioned from having a heart that was so hardened to one that was becoming soft. And this drew Ernest Gordon in to a life of faithfulness. Now, the fourth and final point here is the unexpected encouragement from God. Beginning in chapter 37, really in chapter 36 begins the ultimate transition of the book. And what you see from chapter 36 on is some glorious encouragement from this majestic God. The first stop here is in chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. You've heard this already. But children, let's think about this for a minute. Here's the prophet Ezekiel. And in this vision of God, he's brought to a valley. And what is in the valley? These aren't slain soldiers that were newly laid to rest. There was nothing but bones. There was nothing there but bones. There was no flesh, no clothing, no accoutrements of war, nothing there but bones. The point here in the vision, as he looks out upon him, and he looks here in verse 2, he says, He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. What's the point? Hopelessness is the point. The situation, absolutely hopeless. This is a valley. Not of injured people, but of bones. Verse 3, He said to me, Son of man, by the way, the reference here to Son of man should make you think of the Lord Jesus, but more importantly, the reference here is to this idea that Ezekiel was very much only a man. Hey, dirt! Can these bones live? And what does he say? Oh, Lord God, you know. What do you think? When God saved you, do you view yourself as a dried up old bone? You say, no, I wasn't that bad. I was just kind of hurt. This is a picture 
of people before they're redeemed. What can bring them alive? Verse 4, Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones the word of God, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 5, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And we see the progress of the passage here. Bone on bone, sinew on sinew, skin and flesh, and finally, breath. Hopeless. Hearts that were impenetrable. And then he draws another passage here in verse, excuse me, chapter 40. So let's think about it. This is the 25th year of exile. A long time away from this land that God had given them. Surrounded by images of false Babylonian gods. The city was destroyed, the city that they knew, the city that represented all of the glory of God and of His people, Israel, was absolutely destroyed. Temple destroyed. And what does God bring to Ezekiel such that He can proclaim to His people? Does He say to them, Just make it the best you can. Not sure how it's all going to go in the end. Is that what he says? No. He says, let's think about building a city. Why don't we? Let's, let's, let's measure it out. Why don't we? Let's think about all of the courses and all of the gates and all of the buildings and the walls. Let's think about the new temple. Let's think on this for a while. Let's write it down, why don't we? Let's, let's consider the majesty of God and let's consider this new city and the new Jerusalem and the new temple. The partial fulfillment, of course, in the new temple known in the New Testament, the ultimate fulfillment, of course, being nothing less than the new heavens and the new earth and the temple of, of the people of God. supposed to be very encouraging to us, to God's people. Imagine there they were without the city that represented all of the glory of their God. Matter of fact, their hearts were so hard, they had no hope. But here is God bringing them into these visions Chapter 40 and verse 2, In visions of God, He brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. And when He brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, verse 4, chapter 40, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. The house of Israel just raised up in chapter 37 from a valley of dried up old bones. 
So as we take stock of our own situation, our physical situation and our spiritual situation, God would have us rightly so to be encouraged at God, to focus on the preeminence, on the transcendence, on the glory and majesty of our Creator, but also of this idea that He is a personal God. That He loves us personally. That we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, as a matter of fact, individually. And that God is purposefully inviting us to come. So I would set before you the sweet encouragement from the Lord. We should take great hope that God calls us to Himself. He promises to redeem us. And not only in the initial act of redemption, which for us, of course, is justification, but in conversion, in becoming more and more like Christ day by day in hearts that are not, by the grace of God, permanently impenetrable, but are softened. By the grace of God. Amen. Let us pray.